Hello, and a warm welcome to my Asthma Spotlight podcast. I'm Dr. Mark Levy. I'm a family doctor with a special interest in asthma. My aim is to help people with asthma and also their caregivers to understand more about this disease and how to stay safe. I will share lots of information about asthma. However, I will not be able to answer any personal medical questions for which you should really consult your own doctor. The opinions I express in the Asthma Spotlight podcast are my own and they are not intended as and shall not be understood or construed as medical, health or professional advice of any kind. Please do see the disclaimer details in the podcast description. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So welcome to today's uh, Asthma Spotlight podcast. And I'm delighted and, and really honored to be able to introduce Viv Marsh, who's going to join me today. Um, so hello, Viv. How are you doing? Hi there, Mark. I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do and what sort of training you've had in the background? Well, certainly, yes. So I am a, a nurse by background. So I qualified way back in 1991, so more than 30 years ago, um, as a registered general nurse. Um, and very quickly found my love of nursing children and young people. So shortly after that, went on to train to be a um, registered sick children's nurse. And then I continued to work in acute paediatrics in medical, in the medical area, which is where I first developed my interest in asthma management. And I went on to do various things throughout my career. So I, I moved into school nursing for a period of time and I qualified as a specialist um, community public health nurse. And then I went on into specialist nursing for children and young people with asthma. In fact, I was the first nurse in the country to be funded by asthma and what is now Asthma and Lung UK at the time was Asthma UK. 
and they uh, funded me in a specialist role for 12 months before my um, my area, my CCG as at the time. In fact, it might even have been a PCT. I'm that old. Um, they took on the, the the funding for my post as a children's um, asthma nurse specialist. Um, and then I went on to do prescribing um, and, yeah, various things over the years. So I'm currently in my clinical role. I'm the clinical lead for children and young people's asthma in uh, the black country, which is uh, an area in the West Midlands, right in the heart of the West Midlands. So we have four large townships making up the black country, and those are Wolverhampton, Sandwell, Dudley um, and Warsaw. Um, and so this is an area in the heart of the black country, uh, quite a deprived area. So we, um, our patient population experiences a lot of health inequalities. We have a lot of poverty, a lot of unemployment, um, et cetera, which really impacts the work that I do. So that's um, my NHS role. And so for our listeners, uh, just two things. CCGs and PCTs are uh, clinical uh, um, commissioning groups and primary care trusts. And these are... Um, groups which commission care in the UK. And the, the Black Country description, as I understand, relates to the coal mining industry. Is that right? Um, just generally industry in general. So um, all sorts of industry. Yes, that's what it relates to. Le less so coal mining, mm. more so industry, heavy industry, lots of pollution in the area, uh, lots of manual labour, etc. So very much uh, defines itself along, you know, that sort of that that um, field. Right. Okay. Thank you. And so, can you briefly summarise how you see the current state of asthma care? And um, again, we we're going to focus on children's care today. So, if you could briefly summarise how you see the current state of asthma care for children and young people is at, at the moment in the United Kingdom. I do want to be positive about this because I think it's really important to point out the positives. So I will begin with the positives in that NHS England um, have a policy focus and associated funding around something called a national bundle of care for children and young people's asthma. And this is a good thing because people are in my world, in my healthcare world, are now talking about children's asthma Whereas before, trying to get anybody to think about children's asthma, let alone talk about it or think about making some improvements to the care they provide, um, was extremely difficult. So this sort of policy with NHS England now is making a big difference, and it, I feel very positive about it. It's the sort of um, approach or strategy, if you like, that people like me have been waiting for for quite a long time and calling for for quite a long time, as indeed you yourself have, Mark. Yeah. So I, th I think that's a positive. People are talking um, and there is a little bit of movement around thinking about trying to make things better around asthma care for children and young people. And the question is, why does that need to be the case? Why is that important? It's important because we have more than a million children in this country with asthma. Asthma impacts their lives greatly, and a lot of that impact is hidden. It isn't seen. In the NHS, we tend to measure things by markers such as asthma deaths, uh, as you yourself, as the clinical lead of the National Review of Asthma Deaths 10 years ago now nearly, 
Um, you know, you know this and understand this only too well, but our markers around things like asthma deaths or the number of children that end up being admitted to hospital with an asthma attack, they don't tell the whole picture. They, of course, are very important markers. Um, and, and you know, we we know that the vast majority of asthma deaths and children's asthma deaths are avoidable asthma deaths. And um, any asthma attack in a child severe enough to um, mean that result in them being admitted to hospital um, means that that was actually a very severe asthma attack if, if a child needed to stay over overnight in hospital. Um, but but they're not, they don't tell the whole picture. They don't tell us the picture of maybe the children who go to A&E with asthma attacks and, and go in and out of A&E, or the children who go to urgent care centres with asthma attacks, or the children who um, whose GPs manage their asthma attacks. All of those asthma attacks don't seem to get counted in quite the same way and, and monitored in quite the same way. But also, um, there are so many children living with asthma on a day-to-day -day basis, and they're not living well with their asthma. Their asthma is affect affecting their quality of life in terms of, for example, asthma symptoms disturbing a child's sleep is quite a common occurrence. And this might occur in children and families whereby they think this is normal, um, and they're not concerned about the fact that asthma is causing their child to wake up at night with coughing and wheezing and needing to use inhalers at night. It's it's that there is this sense of, again, Mark, you coined the phrase out of NRAD. There is this sense of complacency around asthma, which stems from a place of poor understanding. Mm. Um, and it stems from a place of um, there being so many people, not just children, but so many people in the country with asthma, with a diagnosis of asthma, or using inhalers, maybe with without a diagnosis of asthma. And it all seems to get put together in this in this big lump of, oh, it's asthma and oh, it's only asthma. And and we have lost sight of what asthma really is and what it really means. And what it really is is a a long-term medical condition it's a chronic condition um and it should be managed as a long-term condition and and any time it goes wrong any time there's a flare-up or somebody needs to use their blue inhaler uh, more than on the odd occasion um then then, then these episodes these aren't acceptable and then they shouldn't be seen as acceptable um, so I think we've got a big problem with perception around asthma, and I think that's the fundamental problem. I think, you know, the amount of times you or I or anybody has been on the bus or in the supermarket queue, and we've seen somebody pull an inhaler out of a bag or a pocket, a, usually a blue inhaler, um, and puff away on it, usually incorrectly. And nobody bats an eyelid except perhaps for people like me and you who want to go and tap them on the shoulder and have a chat with them about their asthma and, and why are they needing to use their blue inhaler in the supermarket queue and did they know that, in fact, they're not using it correctly? Well, that's um, but, a really good summary of of uh, um, a lot of the problems that we have. And, um, I mean, you've, you've highlighted the underestimation of uh, the numbers of children who 
or having attacks because we're not um, um, looking at those outcomes. Um, you've also highlighted the underestimation of the number of children who are prescribed inhalers who don't have a diagnosis, which, yeah. and I, I think it's up to about half a million children mm -hmm. in England. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Other thing that you said, um, interestingly, the disturbed sleep. I published a paper in 1984, and uh, in that paper we found it was taking an average of 17 consultations for children with respiratory symptoms for children to be diagnosed, for the word asthma to appear in the notes. And disturbing sleep was, was a problem in 15% of those children. Mm -hmm. In those days, only 3% of children in the United Kingdom were thought to have asthma, so um, a lot of these children were being missed. missed. And the other thing that you said, which I found very interesting and made me think back, was in that first paper, my wife actually coined a phrase which uh, I, I use quite a lot now, and that was that asthma is seen as an acute illness, and it's treated as if it's a disease which just involves an acute illness which you treat and then send the person home. And you highlighted the fact that it's a chronic illness. And so we've now got a situation in the UK where um, I mean, our government announced, because we've got such a shortage of doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals, that people who are ill should now consult their pharmacist or um, doctors are now delegating care to people. This is asthma care to people who don't have the, the training, really. And um, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I did ask your colleague, Bev Bostock, a few weeks ago the same question. Um, and she wasn't very complimentary about um, doctors who were delegating care to uh, individuals who didn't have asthma training. I mean, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, I'm quite sure that my thoughts would echo my colleague Bev's and indeed your own thoughts um, in that anybody who is looking after any patient with asthma should be competent to do so. Um, and to be competent to do so, they need the appropriate level of training. Um, and support and practice and, uh, you know, supervision around that. I think the problem with um, that that you're alluding to stems back to this idea of complacency, of it's only asthma and of um, seeing, not seeing asthma for what it really is and not understanding asthma for what it really is. Um, and and also, I think in, in the health service in the UK, we've become quite task orientated if you like so very often here in in the UK it will be for example nurses or it has been for a number of years now seen as a a practice nurse's role for example to support people to manage their asthma in the long term so to do that chronic disease management and to assess patients and to educate patients and help them to understand if their asthma is going wrong, what they should do about it, etc. Um, and it's it, a different person's role to manage the acute attack. And it seems to me that never the twain shall meet. And yet it's all part of a spectrum. And there seems to be that lack of understanding. And I am also very concerned about the fact that we have such huge workforce problems yeah. and a changing workforce. So, you know, for many years, we've we we worked very hard on educating and and providing training for 
um, people involved in asthma care, but many of them are coming up to retirement now or, or, and they've become our champions and our, our experienced leaders over the years. Um, and, and so we've got a new workforce. So we've got an evolving workforce. So we've got new roles. Um, we have physicians associates. We have paramedics. We have pharmacists. We have nurse associates. We have pharmacy technicians. You know, so many different roles. They're all important and they all have the opportunity to add value to this whole team approach to asthma care. But they also, if they're going to take that role in asthma care, they need to be appropriately trained. Um, and unfortunately, that's not always the case because the need for it isn't seen so much. So, so two questions that follow on from that. Um, from a patient's perspective, how, how do parents know whether the person who's assessing their child has had adequate training? And secondly, what would your advice be for nurses or pharmacists who delegated the role of performing asthma reviews? What would you be your advice for them? I think those are both excellent questions and they present their own challenges. I think parents need to ask in their of their GP surgeries who should be consulting with me around my child's asthma, who is trained to do that, who is qualified. Um, I know from my own experience as a parent, having take I have two children with asthma they're grown up now but I have had two children with asthma um, and asthma care varies and it's important to have that confidence in that healthcare professionals um, I think that's just incredibly important but I think it's really difficult for parents sometimes to challenge that and to ask that question and certainly my own experience over the years as a healthcare professional listening to parents is they tell me time and time and time again that they hear mixed messages, that one person tells them one thing and another person tells them the other. And which one does a parent believe? They're going to believe the person that they have the most faith and confidence in, but it doesn't mean that that's necessarily the right person to believe. So very often, for example, they might believe a doctor over a nurse, whereas, mm. in fact, the nurse might be the person who is actually more trained and experienced and qualified. So I think they need to be asking. I think they can be asking. I think they should be looking at practice websites. Practice websites these days have, you know, who all the staff are, meet the team, and they very often will um, say who the people uh, what their specialisms are and what their areas of interest are. But I would definitely be asking that question. Healthcare professionals, what uh, would your advice be? My advice would be if you are a registered healthcare professional, your duty is to work within your scope, your own scope, so your own area of competence. And if you're being asked to do something that you know you're not competent to do, then you should not do that because you hold your own registration. You are accountable yourself as a healthcare professional. I think it's extremely difficult um, in the way our NHS is set up at the moment to do that. I think particularly in, in general practice, it's really difficult um, because the employment structure is a little bit different to the standard NHS employment structure. And, you know, a lot of pressure can be brought to bear on members of staff to do anything that 
uh, that they might not necessarily feel confident or competent to do. I think we also need to think about how we're training our healthcare professionals to manage asthma. I gave this some thought, actually. Uh, well, I give it a lot of thought because I'm, I'm quite, as you know, quite involved in um, education for healthcare professionals around asthma. And, and I've had many education roles over the years. And when I think back to when I was developing my knowledge and understanding of asthma to enable me to be an effective practitioner, I learned by experience, I learned by skills, but I also went away and I did what was at the time uh, a lengthy six month diploma level course and it was it was you know I learned a lot from it it was a very good course but at that time that course was very practical and there was exams but they were practical exams so I knew at the end of that course I felt very confident that I knew what I needed to know to do a good job unfortunately things changed over the years and and courses like that and they're few and far between now um a sort of six month diploma type courses around asthma care are, are becoming less common but what they did become was very academic so very academically focused so instead of practical exams or or finding ways for people to demonstrate practical skills and competence they focused on whether healthcare professionals were able to write a good academic essay to a good standard and the reasons for passing or failing was around the academic standard rather than the the ability to support people with asthma to manage their condition and I know because I was in a, a role in that field for a period of time and myself and my colleagues at that time talked a lot around how can we improve this this isn't meeting people's needs we have healthcare professionals who already have degrees having to do a course at degree level and demonstrate academic competence around asthma when they don't need academic credits, they don't need that level, you know, they don't need that level of training. But what they do need is to really understand asthma and know how they can work with their patients. And, and you know, we we talked a lot around the fact that we didn't feel it was meeting their needs. So I think that we need to find other ways of training our healthcare professionals. And, you know, there are opportunities out there. As you'll know, I'm the uh, tutor at Rotherham Respiratory um, where we focus very much on offering a, a, a breadth of education for healthcare professionals. So it could be introductory, it could be sort of an intermediate level or, or indeed an advanced level that provides both training and education and ways of applying that to clinical practice. Well, one of the questions I have is, and it relates back to the competencies. So, for example, in an asthma review, you'd expect somebody to be able to check inhaler technique to construct a self-management plan and, most importantly, to identify risk and know when yeah. to go banging on the doctor's door and saying, this person needs to be seen right now. Do you actually have a way of um, of assessing the competence of the individuals and letting them know what they can and can't do in the review? Yes, so it's it it's become increasingly challenging in this world in which we're working in now with so many more patients and so many more healthcare professionals involved. So I guess it comes down to um, really thoughtful design of courses and engagement with the workforce. It's not possible to bring every single member of staff to one tutor and get them to to assess inhaler technique. However, 
what we need is respiratory leaders in every area. That's what we really need. And that's something that the um, the bundle of care and all the respiratory ne networks call for. But it's about exploring what's the, what's the role of that respiratory lead. And I think that this should be one of the roles. I think actually directly um, uh, making them responsible for the quality of the confidence and the competence of the workforce should be their role and it should be their responsibility so i think that's one of the things that we can still improve on and this uh, rotherham course is this expensive for people to join um oh gosh um i don't think it's ex they're ex as expensive as other courses out there but there is a cost to them i know a lot of nurses don't get funding from their employers to do courses well nurses working in general practice all have funding um, they do have funding and Rotherham Respiratory courses and other courses, I have to say, we're not just here to talk about Rotherham Respiratory, um, are available. You know, funding is available um, for nurses in primary care. I think it's nurses in secondary care that have a little bit more difficulty getting access to training budget. So I think they're fairly reasonably priced. What I would say to anybody is that you have to look at your role and what your uh, what your competence needs are, because there are some, you know, we talked a little bit earlier before we um, started recording the podcast today about um, other sources. So, for example, e-learning for healthcare, which is provided by Health Education England for the NHS staff, that's free. And there is basic courses on there that provide a really good introduction to asthma. And I think the thing is, when you do a course like that, an introductory course like that, what it really does is it teaches you or it, it helps you to understand what gaps there are in your knowledge and how much more you need to go on and learn. So it's not uh, do this two hour course online and that's it. You're qualified to manage asthma. That's not a case at all, because being able to manage asthma, it isn't about a qualification. It's about your own competence and your own confidence in your abilities that's such an important point and it was highlighted in one of the uh, inquests where i was expert witness for the coroner where i made it a policy to ask for evidence of training of the individuals who were caring for these children before they died and in one case the nurse nurse's training the nurse who was delegated to look after this child's asthma had trained about 20 years ago as part of her, um, her yeah. nursing training. Yeah. And um, I just, I felt for the nurse because I don't think she should have been put in that position. And like you said, some people find it difficult to say that they don't feel happy. But I, I would reiterate what you said earlier. If you're a healthcare professional and you're asked to do something and you don't feel competent to do so, then for heaven's sake, say so. Because you not only put yourself and your own registration at risk, but you put the patient at risk as well. Absolutely. Yeah, and so I, I think let's let's move on now to um, this research study that your colleague did, um, Daniel Langer, on identifying parents' concerns. I, I read that with great interest because it highlighted a number of things, really, one of which was around diagnosis, which I mentioned was one of the first things that I published many years ago. Can you talk a bit about that? I mean, he highlighted diagnosis in schools and continuity of care and also 
um, the fact that parents felt they weren't taken seriously. Dan is a, a doctor working in public health in the Wolverhampton, in Wolverhampton, which is um, one of my areas in the Black Country. He did uh, a lovely piece of research where he interviewed parents and around their perspectives and. He identified six themes from the parents that he spoke to. Um, and I have to say, I don't think any of the themes are new themes. Um, but it was, from my point of view, as the lead in the Black country for making improvements to children's asthma, it gave me very recent evidence and local evidence. Everybody likes local evidence these days, because if it happens in London market, apparently it's not relevant in the Black country. But you know, so we have to do our own. We have to brand everything ourselves. I interrupt don't we? you there briefly because you know <laughs> um, I'm involved in the the global initiative for asthma, which is the international group which writes oh. strategy documents for asthma. And yeah, it wasn't invented in the UK, so no. I've been trying to persuade people to use that as a resource. Sorry, so carry on. Yeah. I feel your frustration. It feels like we have to keep repeating things and repeating things. But anyway, so so Dan's piece of work was enormously helpful. I have to say to me, as somebody needing to make and lead change and lead improvement across the whole of the black country. And and the, the themes that Dan identified were uh, this sense of power struggle between parents and healthcare professionals um, and parents wanting to be in control and being enabled to be in control of their children's asthma because of course they must be because they're looking after their children all of the time though another theme was around the difficulties of the diagnostic process and, and a lot of that was around inconsistency and that's something we can get better at I can't wave a magic wand you can't wave a magic wand and make it easy to diagnose asthma but what we can can do is we can get better at it and we can get better at supporting parents through the process and we can improve consistency around the messages that we as healthcare professionals give to parents. Something there around the role of schools and school nurses. If My, my, my biggest mantra is if a parent doesn't feel confident to send their child with asthma to school one day because their asthma, may, they, maybe they had a bad night with their asthma. If they don't have confidence in that school, they're not going to send their child to, to that school. They're going to keep their child away from school that day and maybe numerous other days throughout the year. So it's important, you know, it's so important that um, families are confident in school's ability to keep their child with asthma safe and well. So asthma policies in schools, robust policies in schools, these are really, really important. Partnerships with health. So again, shared decision making, feeling part of that process was another theme that came out. Another theme that came out was this quest for knowledge and getting the right source of information and the right source of knowledge. Again, I've mentioned this before. They hear one thing from one person and another thing from another person. We've just got to get better at this, at consistency, and, and stop bringing our own personal beliefs as healthcare professionals to, to the job. It's just not good practice. Um, and then there's something around social network support. So these themes that Dan identified, you know, we my job is to implement a national bundle of care, but I'm making sure that I'm I've got my eye on the ball with each one of these themes that Dan's work identified. But the other real huge positive of Dan's work is that um, we now have in public health strategy for this current year, children's asthma is one of the priorities in public health in Wolverhampton. And 
I'm leading on that on behalf of the public health department. And that's really good, you know, to have something as a strategic focus across public health where we're bringing and it's a partnership. So it's public health and other parties. Um, we're, we're able to really focus on uh, how we can work together, whether it's hospital doctors and nurses, primary care doctors and nurses, pharmacists, school nurses, how we can all work together to improve um, this experience that parents are telling us is really not very good for them. You know, you've you've highlighted something that's been a great frustration for me, and that is um, it goes back to something you said earlier, and that was uh, when Dan reported on the study, the things that he found were not new, the things that we knew about, and you alluded earlier as well to things that we've known about for a long time. And we're now in a situation in the UK where um, we're relying on local innovators like yourself to implement local programs. And it really distresses me to, to hear that there's a, there's a local public health program in your area. Now, why on earth? We've known for over 50 years what the difficulties on asthma are. And the National Review of Asthma Deaths was published 10 years ago. Why on earth don't we have two or three key things that we do nationally to bring about change? And I'll go back to the National Review of Asthma Deaths. We said anybody who's had two or more attacks of asthma in the last year should be referred to a specialist. And yet now we're we're reading in the literature that only 20% of people who've got severe asthma are being referred to a specialist. And it goes back to Albert Einstein. If you want to bring about change, why do you keep doing exactly the same thing over and over and over again? And so that's that's very encouraging. And I'm delighted that you are actually implementing um, evidence in your in your local area. Um, and so do you have any ideas how we can make this sort of thing national? What sort of noise do we need to make to make it national? Well, we do need to make noise. And this is why I feel positive about the bundle of care, because although it's a program, um, it is a program as part of the long term plan. So theoretically, the long term plan is in place until 2029. So that's theoretically how long I have. And I'd like to think I can make a lot of noise in that time, along with people like yourself. So we do need to make noise. But what we need to do is we need to gather some evidence around this work, around the implement, you know, the work that we're implementing and actually start to gather the outcomes. And we really need to get better at working, um, at understanding commissioning and working with commissioning. And, you know, I'm a nurse. I'm not a commissioner. I don't understand commissioning. You know, I don't understand money other than, as my husband would say, how to spend it. <laughs> you know, it's it's not my skill set as a nurse. So um, that's something that I'm currently having to learn is, you know, to understand commissioning a little bit more and how to make the case and how to make these arguments um, is so important. One of the things I would say, and again, something that I feel positive about, is that um, within the National Bundle of Care, as well as um, NHS England launching a bundle of care and providing enough funding to have people like me in every area, very part-time, I have to say, but at least a lead in every area, somebody to be that champion in an area. They have also provided um, pockets of funding for different projects, and we've actually got one of those projects in the Black Country, and it's called a Specialist Practitioner Pilot. 
So at the moment, I have two other nurses working with me um, as pilot practitioners. And that means that there's a little bit more resource. They're both full time. I'm part time. We work together and we've got a strategy um, of work to to things that we can really implement. And we're the two things that we are most focused on in our area is diagnosis and risk. So we, we, we've we got other things going on. There's management going on. There's um, management of asthma going on. And, you know, you'll know my colleague, Joanne Hamilton, very well, I'm quite sure, who has um, led on our brilliant um, asthma treatment guidelines in the Black Country for many years now. Um, they've recently been updated and they remain really high quality. And, you know, things like those treatment guidelines have a real difference in practice because all of those healthcare professionals um, out there in the black country, they are all aware of these treatment guidelines. They refer to them all of the time. And, you know, I regularly go into GP practices and I, I see them pinned up on the wall or on people's desktops or even folded up in uh, as a piece of paper in, in nurses' pockets and things. So they refer to them all of the time. But our pilot is all around diagnosis and risk. And we've got very focused pieces of work going on where we aim to demonstrate improvement and and we are being quite maverick in some respects in in that we're not for example in diagnosis we're not focusing on spirometry we don't believe that that's where we should be focused you know spirometry being just one test that can sometimes help to diagnose some people with asthma we're we're focusing much more widely the uh, broadly than that and actually thinking about individual children rather than a tick box one size fits all approach that's really great because for people listening asthma fluctuates from day to day and hour to hour and so if you do a test like spirometry which is a lung function test on a day when somebody's well then um you can't exclude asthma as a diagnosis and so can you can you summarize some key messages for patients um, with regard to diagnosis and also to help people to try and um, perhaps be a bit more assertive in getting help from their um, practice in the care of their uh, of their child, especially if their child is having repeated episodes of wheezing or shortness of breath. Okay, <clears throat> so here's what I think. I think if you're a parent of a child who is having problems with their breathing, and as you just said, they're repeated episodes. They, you know, occur frequently, whether it's just wheezing or whether it's other symptoms like, for example, in asthma, a nighttime cough in children is quite a common thing to experience alongside episodes of wheezing. Then you need to seek help from your medical professionals and, for, and from your healthcare team at your GP surgery. It's really important. Sometimes as a parent, you just have to persevere and that can be really difficult. I would say if you're um, if you need support with that, there are other mechanisms that you can search out as a parent. Um, you could go to Asthma and Lung UK, who have got some fantastic resources, including specifically around how to know if my child's got asthma. That's a really good resource. But they also have an advice line of specialist nurses who work 9am till 5pm, Monday to Friday, there's a telephone um, line, there's a, a WhatsApp chat function, um, and they are experts, they are specialist nurses. And I know, I know many of these nurses, and they regularly get calls from parents who are saying, 
my GP won't listen to me or my child keeps having this problem and I'm not getting anywhere. And they give them very supportive and tailored advice and, and they are on hand. So make use of that. I think it's really important that parents understand that if a child, if their child has got asthma, that the treatment for asthma is a preventer inhaler. I think that's vital. Um, and that reliever inhalers, usually blue reliever inhalers, these are for rescue use. These aren't actually treating your child's asthma. And it's really important to know that, that it's preventer inhalers that treat asthma. And it's very one of the areas that people get really confused about. So that's a key take home message. If a child is needing to use a blue reliever inhaler any more than twice a week on a regular basis, then they really that needs to prompt a review with a, you know, with a health qualified healthcare professional. I think it's really important to check that your child can use their inhaler correctly. Everybody thinks they can drive. Everybody thinks they can use their inhaler correctly. But the amount of people that are making mistakes is phenomenal, including healthcare professionals. So, again, that's about getting that checked with the healthcare professional or indeed, you know, finding a, a high quality, a reputable source of training um, and, or looking somewhere, for example, like Asthma and Lung UK have got videos of all inhalers being used correctly. That that can be quite helpful. And I think it's just really important. And, and I think um, this is my final point, is that if your child has got asthma, make sure they have an asthma action plan. If they do not have an asthma action plan, make an appointment for a review with that asthma healthcare professional at your GP surgery and ask them for a plan. Discuss it with them. Make sure that you understand it. And if you've got any questions about it, ask those questions and then make sure that that plan is shared with anybody else involved in your child's care, whether it's at school or whether they go to a childminder or whether they go and stay with another family member at the weekend, whatever. Make sure that everybody involved in the care of your child's asthma has got access to that plan and that they know how to help your child if they're having asthma symptoms. What a wonderful summary and a really good place to end with lots of uh, useful bits of advice. I I have got a link to Asthma and Lung UK on my information page, which I'll put a link to um, with this uh, podcast. And so thank you so much for, for joining me today and a wonderful discussion. I've learned a bit from you today as well. Um, and uh, I, I'm hoping that a lot of people will find this very beneficial. So thank you so much for your time. Really great. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. You know, it's always good to talk about children's asthma. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you found this helpful, and I hope you did, please click the like and the follow buttons and share this podcast. Please do send me any feedback or questions to my email address, asmaspotlight at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to answer these in future episodes.